1: This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza Welcome back to award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new school audience. And today, we continue the story of Pistol Pete Maravich. In last week's episode, we shared about his father, Press, who was a major influence in the life of Pistol Pete Maravich. We also shared about Pete's early childhood. Practically from the day that Pete was born, Press made a decision to build Pete into the greatest basketball player ever. Press was extremely confident that he could do it. After all, he had been a professional basketball player himself having played in the NBA and then gone into college coaching. If anyone was going to build a basketball player, it would be someone with the qualifications that Press had. He would even tell people that he was going to make Pete into the greatest basketball player of all time. He would also tell people that Pete would be the first million dollar basketball player. When we finished our episode last week with Press being recruited to leave North Carolina State University and take over as head coach at Louisiana State University or LSU, the one condition that LSU had for their new coach is that he bring his son with him to join the team. Pete originally wanted to play at West Virginia University, which is where Jerry West played. West was a hero to young Pete Maravich, but Press won that argument and the entire family moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. One of the reasons that Pete did not want to go to LSU is because LSU is a football school. It always has been and probably always will be. American football is the most popular sport in that part of the country. The LSU students and fans practically schedule their lives around the school's football games. The basketball team takes a distant second place in the life of the university. Some people might even say that basketball is in third place behind the baseball team. Regardless Pete wanted to go to a school where the basketball team was the featured team. Just to highlight this fact a little bit more, at the time LSU did not even have its own basketball facility. They used an agricultural exposition center near campus. The place often smelled like farm animals because that is what usually occupied the building. When the Maraviches showed up on campus hardly anyone even took notice. Again, I cannot stress this enough. Basketball was not a big deal at LSU. The arrival of the great Pistol Pete Maravich barely made the news. It would be a much different story 22 years later when Shaquille O'Neal joined LSU. When Shaq showed up, they practically had a parade for him. But there he was at LSU and Press gave Pete the green light to take a shot from anywhere and everywhere. Back then, the freshman or first-year players were not allowed to play on the varsity, which meant that Pete had to play on the freshman team for a year before joining the regular varsity. Press had inherited a varsity that was short on talent. They only won three games that first year under Press. But the freshman team went 17-1 behind the talent of Pistol Pete. On most game nights, the freshman team would play first and then the varsity would come in and play the second game. The students would pack the place just to watch the freshman team and then half of them would leave when the varsity took the court. Pete averaged 43.6 points per game for that freshman team, so everyone was excited when Pete returned as a sophomore and ready to join the varsity. By sophomore year Pete had grown to his full height of 6 foot 5 or 196 centimeters. He wore his hair longer and shaggy, kind of like the way the Beatles wore their hair during Hard Day's night. This was a stark departure from press who still wore a hairstyle known as a high and tight which went back to his Navy days. To most people in 1967, Pistol Pete looked like a hippie disguised as a basketball player. But his hair was not the only reason he stood out. He also wore those floppy socks that he was known for. The socks were gray and Pete brought them from North Carolina State University. He just liked the way that the socks felt on his feet, so he wore them for every game. But the elastic had completely worn out and the socks fell down to his ankles as soon as he took two steps. So he had this signature look. Press did not mind at all because he saw Pete's look as potentially marketable in the future. Press still looked at Pete as a future millionaire basketball player. Anything that could help Pete land endorsement deals in the future was fine with Press. For that that sophomore season, Pete averaged 44 points per game. His lowest scoring game of the season was 21, and his high was 59 points against the University of Alabama, which broke the conference record and the LSU school record that used to belong to Hall of Famer Bob Pettit. The team improved to 14-12 and 12 that season, and Press felt good about it. In his mind, Pete was only going to get better. And that took Pete into the summer of 1968, which was an Olympic summer. Pete went to the tryouts for the team that would travel to the Olympics in Mexico City. The coach for that team was Hank Iba. Iba is a deservingly Hall of Fame coach from Oklahoma State University. But he coached from the late 1920s until the very early 1970s. He was as old school as it gets. He preferred traditional basketball and he was looking for players that would play his system without question. Pretty much from day one, Pete did not fit that description. His freewheeling style, his behind the back passes, his shots from Steph Curry territory, and his extreme showmanship did not fit what Hank Iba was looking for. Nobody could deny Pete's talent and his ability to score from just about anywhere. But he was a very individual player, and in all honesty, he might not have fit that well with the other great players on that 1968 team. Players like Spencer Haywood, Charlie Scott, and JoJo White. So back to LSU for Pete's junior year, where he continued to dominate with 44.2 points per game. The school sold out all of their season tickets. Pete was completely unstoppable. No one in the country could stop him. Also, LSU formally approved the new arena and they were getting ready to begin construction. In the meantime, the basketball team continued to play their games at the Ag Center. During that season, he broke his own record with 66 points against Tulane in a loss. Pete was, again, scoring in huge bunches, but the team did not really improve. Their record on the season was 13-13. and 13. It got to the point where you had to ask the question, how in the world could LSU even lose 13 games when they had a scorer like Pete on the team? Well, that is where it comes to Press's recruiting. Except for Pete, Press never successfully recruited another blue chip type player. Nobody questions his acumen as a coach and the way that he thought about the game. But Press would recruit for passion over skill. He would take a lesser skilled player with a great amount of desire. Now I am not saying that this is right or wrong. I'm just saying that this is how Press was. He wanted a group of players that would die for the game. Those were his kind of players. Because that's the kind of player he was. Except that Press actually had talent to go along with his desire. Back when he was a player. When he recruited high school players during his time at LSU, he did not talk about playing at the next level or possibly putting them in a position for the pros or even the free education that they would receive. He would recruit players by emphasizing that one day they will be able to tell their grandkids that they played with the great Pistol Pete Maravich. That is how he tried to sell LSU to potential players. Now, this is a good place to take a break, and we will be right back with Pete's senior year at LSU.
2: Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportsfisherynumber.com, ROW number one, for access to the full Row One catalog and for gallery prints and gift items. Plus, get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row One Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes.
1: Welcome back to the show and let's continue with Pete's senior year. He was approaching the all-time college scoring record and had a good chance of surpassing Oscar Robertson who had 2,973 points throughout his career from his time at the University of Cincinnati. While things were going great for Pete on the court, things were not going so well for Pete at home. His older brother Ronnie, who was pretty much ignored by press, had returned from fighting in Vietnam with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Unfortunately, proper help was not readily available for most of America's soldiers who returned from war with mental health issues. Ronnie was one of those guys who did not get the help that he needed. At the same time, Helen Maravich, Pete's mother, was suffering from mental health issues of her own. She struggled with deep depression and alcohol. She felt that she had been abandoned as a basketball widow. Press and Pete could only talk about basketball and it was something that they were both passionate about and something that they shared. Helen was not part of their basketball world, she was on the outside, and for a long time she did not even have Ronnie who was off fighting in Vietnam. She tried to hide her alcoholism, but Press and Pete were constantly finding empty bottles hidden around the house. It was awfully painful for Pete who stayed away from home as much as possible. He lived in the dorms and then later lived in an off-campus apartment. The point was that he barely saw his own mother even though they both lived in the same town. He could not stand to see her inebriated. Pete also began drinking himself as a way of burying his pain. He lived two completely different lives. In basketball, he was the leading scorer in the country with a very bright NBA future. But his personal life had hit rock bottom. He began to fall into depressions himself and did not know how to handle it. He felt that he had no one to talk to about his problems. He chose to suffer alone. However, Pete did meet a girl named Jackie who would become his future wife and the mother of his two sons. What made the relationship work so well is that Jackie was not a basketball fan at all. She had never heard of Pistol Pete Maravich. She just thought he was some cute guy from the bar. She genuinely cared about him and was probably the only good thing going for him in his personal life. The other thing that complicated the life of the marriage family was Ronnie's marriage. As I mentioned, he had mental health issues that he was not getting help for. He got married and had a daughter named Diana. But his wife was not interested in actually raising the child. And neither was Ronnie for that matter. They planned on giving Diana up for adoption, but Press and Helen would not hear of it. They volunteered to raise Diana as their own. But because of Helen's alcoholism, the primary care person in Diana's life, was Press. He was a Division I college coach who traveled a lot, but he was also living life like a single dad. Helen was deep into her own issues, so Press took over all of the household chores. He cooked meals and he barely slept, and he would arrange for a neighbor to watch Diana while he was traveling with the team for a road game. It was extremely difficult for Press to keep up. The anger and depression in Pete kept growing and growing and so did his drinking. During that senior year, Pete continued to dominate with a 44.5 point per game average. Press decided that that would be good enough for his LSU team to take on the defending champion, UCLA, coached by Press's good friend, John Wooden. It was a mistake to schedule that game. Pete scored 38 points on a very dismal 14 for 42 shooting, and UCLA won the game by 49 points. UCLA broke their own school record by scoring 133 points for the game. Now, just to be clear, the final score was UCLA 133 to 84. UCLA completely exposed LSU as a one man show, which is essentially what they were. Now, that is no offense to his teammates who were good college players, but Press's offensive system was just to give the ball to Pete and get out of the way. Press emphasized to John Wooden that Pete would be the first million-dollar basketball player. But Wooden warned Press. Wooden agreed that Pete probably would be a million-dollar player, but that Pete would never win a championship if he kept playing the way that he played. Later that season, on January 31st, 1970, Pete found himself just one game away from breaking Oscar Robertson's all-time college scoring record. The opponent was the University of Mississippi, or Ole Miss. It was another high scoring night for Pete. The place was bursting at the seams with fans who wanted to be there to witness history. He tied the record on a layup with just under 8 minutes left to play. And the place was going wild. The players for LSU, knowing that Pete just needed one more basket to break the record, kept feeding him on every possession. Pete then missed his next seven shots in a row. It was awful for the fans. The tension in the building was as thick as fog, but finally, with around four and a half minutes to play, Pete made a 23 foot jump shot to break Robertson's record. The game stopped, and fans rushed the court, and two teammates hoisted Pete onto their shoulders for a victory lap around the court. Pete continued to add to his total and scored 53 points on that night. The team still had around 13 more games in their schedule, so this would allow Pete to put that record so far out of reach that it would take a couple of generations before anyone would break it. In fact, it has been Over 50 years since Pistol Pete broke that record, and even though college basketball players can now play four years of college basketball instead of just three when Pete played. Pistol Pete still owns the record today with 3,667 total career points. The closest anyone got was a player named Freeman Williams from Portland State in the mid-1970s, who played four years and was still 400 points shy of Pete's record. The team went 20-8 for that senior year and qualified for the NIT tournament to be held in Madison Square Garden in New York City. The NIT wanted Pistol Pete badly since Pete sold out every game he played in. The NIT people knew that having LSU in their tournament would mean a big financial windfall. They did not win the tournament, but the NIT people got what they wanted. Lots of tickets sold. That brought Pete's college career to a conclusion. He would win the Naismith College Basketball Player of the Year award for 1970. He was all but guaranteed to be a top pick in the NBA draft and the arena that LSU promised to press 40 years earlier was nearing completion and would be ready for the following season. The first one without Pistol Pete Maravich. But the building is still known today as a house that Pistol Pete built. If it were not for Pistol Pete, the new gym might have taken many more years before it was built. The greatest scorer in college basketball history had played his last game and was ready to transition to the next level. The only question, who would take him? The Detroit Pistons had the first pick in the draft, but no matter how good you were as a guard, there was always a premium on big men. And the best big man coming out of college that year was future Hall of Famer Bob Lanier from St. Bonaventure University. Well, that wraps up part two of the Pistol Pete story. Join us next week when we conclude the story of Pistol Pete with his NBA career and retirement. We will also talk about how Pete finally came to terms with his life, with alcohol, and with his anger. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to SportsHistoryNetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loaiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories in the past. Take care and see you soon.
0: Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network.